Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. We left off last week talking about conscience, and I don't want to belabor this, but let's just pick back up on um, page 113. Now, much more could be said about conscience than maybe has been said, and I'm going to kind of hold my tongue um, and not you know, spend the rest of the hour telling you everything that I have learned in regard to conscience, and just let Wolf Mueller's text speak for itself. If you recall the biblical foundation for this particular meditation, that's found on over on page 112, with the quotation Hebrews 9.14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The long and the short here, it's the blood of Jesus that purifies our conscience. And over on 113, just to give us a quick review, of course, um, we, we all have experienced a bad conscience, and I made the point that um, a conscience can be uh, well-informed, objectively speaking, that would be formed after the natural law, the Ten Commandments, um, the morality of God himself, um, and then, obje- and then again, objectively speaking, a badly formed conscience would be a conscience not in keeping with the Word of God. Okay? You can now. Why do you still want to respect people's conscience, even if it's ill-informed, okay? even if it's a, a bad conscience or a misaligned conscience? Um, simply because you're recognizing that it's an organ, and so if the organ itself doesn't understand that it's misinformed, you can't well trample it and make it. Heal, okay, so you need to, you need to inform the bad conscience to where it's rightly informed. Okay, and then we can talk about bad conscience too, specifically in the way of accusation, that the conscience, you know, this is the pit you get in your stomach, the feeling you get. Sometimes you can't sleep, you lose sleep at night. Sometimes that's due to a bad conscience, not always. If it's due to a bad conscience, it kind of tends to go like this, like you're replaying something over and over and over in your head, and you're like, well, I only said that because this, and I only did that then because this, and oh, I wish I could have said that. And then you just keep, when you keep cycling, that is nine times out of ten probably a bad conscience. That's your conscience being like, no, you didn't handle that right. And that's, um, your conscience met with, um, remember that other Latin phrase we've used, the opinio legis, that thing within yourself that desires to self-justify all the time. When the conscience and the opinio legis hit each other, that can be, uh, that can be a terrible affair, a warfare within a person and could definitely preclude sleep. So, um, again, just broadly speaking, the conscience is cleansed. The conscience ceases to accuse when the conscience itself has been addressed by the gospel. Divine forgiveness. An authority greater than the conscience itself. St. John puts it this way. Even if your heart condemns you, there is one who is greater than your heart. And that absolution of Christ Jesus, you know, and this too can be a wrestle because your conscience may be, you know, kind of like that dog that doesn't want to give up the bone. 
Um, but again, it has to submit to an authority higher than itself, and that's the absolution of Christ. So that cleanses the conscience, the blood of Jesus, the absolution of Jesus. Now, how is the conscience healed by way of being form, rightly formed? And that's through the Word of God. That's, you know, you basically there are two things that form the conscience. And that is, like, because, okay, let's put it this way. Imagine someone who's thoroughly indoctrinated um, with the progressive LGBT stuff to where they honestly believe and feel in their heart that anyone who says this is sinful is themselves worthy of being jailed and put away with hate speech. Their conscience is actually telling them that it would be right to persecute these people who are telling them the truth. And their conscience is so misinformed they actually think it's right to champion this wrong cause. Now that's a conscience that's misinformed. It's actually, and then it actually is accusing in the wrong places. You see, then we need to be gentle always with conscience. We can't just abuse conscience and say, "Well, betray your conscience," because it's an organ. It's sensitive. If you trample it, it just gets less and less. It doesn't correct. The voice of conscience just gets more and more silent. So what we want to do is treat the conscience by informing it. We inform it by the Word of God. It's the powerful, creative, formative, healing Word of God that creates the right ordering of the conscience. And, of course, the Ten Commandments are instrumental in this. Instrumental in realigning the conscience so that what God says is right, the conscience says is right. What God says is wrong, the conscience says is wrong. That's part of the overarching healing process. So far, so good? All right, well, I know we've we've had to go very broadly here, but we've touched on a couple of the central points that are important in considering conscience. We can see, too, that this argument um, kind of in our culture, sometimes it emerges in all different circles of, well, my conscience is bound to do X, or my conscience is bound to do Y. Okay, we can look at this in two different ways. First way, is that conscience properly informed by God's Word. If it is, we, sub- we fully, 100% support that act of conscience. Okay? Is that conscience not informed by God's Word? Is it informed by something else? Oh yes, the two things that inform conscience, ultimately, God and the devil. The truth and lies, that's it. Is it rightly informed or not? Okay, if it's wrongly informed, we need to say, we need to say that. We need to say your sense of right and wrong is skewed. Now, we're not going to force you against your conscience um, unless, you know, some higher law bids us do that very thing. We're not going to force you against your conscience because the conscience is an organ. It's not meant to be trampled or mistreated. But we are going to instruct you that your conscience is poorly informed. And this is the right way your conscience ought to be ordered. And then if it was rightly ordered, you wouldn't have this qualm of conscience. Okay, so Wolfmuller is going to lead us by way of biblical analogy, um, considering conscience in the way of the courtroom. And this is a fine way to look at it. It's just not the only way to look at it. Um, But he's got this, again, biblical motif of the conscience um, as a courtroom. So if you look at page 113, and we drop down to, it would be the third paragraph under who dug that pit in your stomach. And here Wolfmuller writes, a rightly ordered conscience 
or in a rightly ordered conscience, the Lord sits as judge. The Ten Commandments are the law. We are the accused. The devil is the accuser. Of course, here, caveat with Luther, you can't tell the difference between your conscience, the devil, or God. <laughs> Satan is a Hebrew title, meaning accuser. This, no doubt, is a terrifying picture. We are guilty of sin and should be condemned. This is why we try so hard to manipulate what is happening in the courtroom of our conscience. All right, well, that gives us, um, in broad terms, the analogy being used. Of course, what happens in the courtroom of conscience? We attempt to self-justify, to be our own defenders. That goes as well as it does in the legal system today, <laughs> when you try to be your own attorney. doesn't go well, typically. Page 114, third paragraph from the top. Wolfmuller writes, self-justification is the distortion of the conscience through pride. Okay, so that's, that's saying, hey, I, you know, you're arguing with your conscience. No, in fact, what I did was right, even though your conscience, here we're assuming it's rightly formed, it's rightly ordered after the Ten Commandments, it's telling you what you did was wrong. So this is pride, self-justification. And then look at what, what happens on the other hand. Self-atonement is the distortion of the conscience through despair. This is kind of what happens, you know. <laughs> in undergrad, I saw this a few times. Um, somebody would go on like a wild drinking spree, and then they'd be like, I'm never going to drink again. I'm going to go volunteer at the soup kitchen. I'm going to clean everything up and do it. Okay, what are they, what are they trying to do? I mean, I never could have told you at the time, but they're trying to self-atone and give themselves a good conscience by cleaning everything up. Does it work? No, not ultimately. It can make you feel a little better. Um, it can take away the edge off the conscience, but ultimately it still sits there that you know you can't make up for what you have done. And of course that gets more acute or more grave depending upon the sin or nature of the sins. So we have these two sides. We have self-justification and self-atonement. Those are the two ways that people attempt to handle a bad conscience. One leads to pride. One leads to despair. All right, what's the Christian alternative, or really the alternative that God gives to us? If we look down to the second to the last paragraph, really the last full paragraph of 114, Wolfmuller introduces our twofold help. This teaching is captured in the Greek word parakletos, or in English, paraclete. A paraclete is an official friend who goes with you to court. A paraclete is a legal counsel, a defense attorney. The paraclete advocates for the defendant before the court and, can, and comforts the defendant with his kindness. In 1 John 2, 1, we read, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. And the word there in the Greek is this parakletos. We have a paraclete with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Okay, so in we have this twofold paraclete. In the first place, it's the Lord Jesus himself who defends us in in the courtroom of our conscience. Now, Wolf Mueller is going to make a distinction here. 
that's fine. Um, but let's just let it sit for right now that Jesus is, um, is our paraclete. Um, continuing on then, uh, yeah, so the last line of this paragraph indicates this. Jesus is our paraclete who stands before the Father in the heavenly court pleading our case. Jesus ascended into heaven 43 days after his crucifixion. He brought with him the victory of his cross. Jesus stood before the judgment throne of God with his blood. See Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. His blood is the evidence of his sacrifice and our righteousness. God the Father receives that evidence. We are declared innocent and righteous. Jesus continues to sit at the Father's right hand as our advocate with the Father, as our paraclete with the Father. He continues to plead his death for our sake. And again, biblical references, Hebrews 7.25 and Romans 8.34. Okay, Jesus is not the only paraclete, and that's why I called this a twofold comfort. From his seat at the Father's right hand, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to be our paraclete on earth. In John 14, 16, and verse 26, and in chapter 16, 7, the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete. Now quoting, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, again, literally paraclete, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and will be in you. All right, so what is Wolfmuller's point? That God has given us this twofold comfort, that Christ Jesus, through his shed blood, is our paraclete who comforts us, cleansing our conscience with his blood. And the Holy Spirit also is our paraclete, our comforter, who dwells with us and in us, and directs us to, as we're going to see in the next chapter, directs us to the words of Jesus and the sacraments of Jesus wherein we find Jesus and the forgiveness of our sins. Okay, so this is the answer to a bad conscience. Confess and receive Christ's forgiveness. And receive that forgiveness in his word and in his sacraments. Um, we can refer most specifically in our minds to what Wolfmuller has just previously covered, confession and absolution. And the unique gift that God gives us where we can individually go to a pastor confess our sins knowing that he will keep them under confessional seal and that he will pronounce God's forgiveness to us. A living word that is powerful to cleanse us of all our sins, to set our conscience free and, and give, a, give a good conscience within us. All right, let's pause there because um, maybe we'll do a couple more comments just in closing uh, of this chapter. But let's, let's stop here and just see if we have any... Um, any major issues or uh, questions about conscience? You know how we say, uh, if you, I, I'm paraphrasing it incorrectly, but if you stay in sin long enough, you're, you can lose your salvation or you're unrepentant. So, but, is the same thing true with your conscience, uh, that you deaden the conscience by just keeping on with your uh, persistent in, the, in that sin? Or, uh, in other words, 
if you rob banks long enough, do you ever get used to it? Yeah, right. That's exactly what happens. You wear the conscience down and de facto change the, the content of the conscience so that things that it previously screamed out against, it no longer does. And you could, you just very generally speaking, and this is somewhat anecdotal, but it's, it goes from, um, I know this is bad and wrong, um, you know, to, uh, well, there's a lot of mitigating circumstances, so it's not so bad or wrong as I once perceived it to be, to, you know, this is normal, um, to this should just be accepted and mainstream, to this should be celebrated and we should have branding and flags and parades and this is the move. It goes, it goes through that spectrum. And at the point in time in which we're calling evil good and good evil and celebrating evil as if it were good and condemning good as if it were evil, we've reached the terminal state. Yeah. You can't go further than that. So, um, yeah, we see that progression writ large in our society, but we can see it in ourselves too. It's, it's easier sometimes, hindsight being 2020, to look back at different parts of our life and see, oh yeah, that's what happened. And then here's what woke me up, or here's the terrible thing that happened that, that now God be praised because it got me out of that. Yeah, I, mortal sin, I think, is a little bit of a different category. Um, um, but can, f there's definitely some overlap there. It would just be a little tough sorting out. But, yeah, but the idea of, the idea of mortal sin is, is not that so much that you fall into it unwittingly. It's just, you know, in that same way, and I think here's the overlap, in the same, you just no longer seek forgiveness. You no longer recognize it as, as wrong to the point of needing forgiveness. You just start to say, um, no, I want, I want, acceptance. I want the pastor's blessing, the church's blessing, God's blessing. I want some theology that tells me it's okay to go on doing what I'm doing. Um, this is, you know, what what is that doing? That's putting comfort, the gospel, into the realm of the old Adam and the flesh. Whereas in our spiritual warfare, we want only the law to go to the old Adam, right? Only the law that says, this is what God requires of you. Nothing more, nothing less. And if you're unwilling to do this, which of course you are, then you stand condemned. To the conscience, the new man, we want to give only the gospel. You don't give the gospel to the old man, otherwise he takes it and runs with it. The old man, the old man, the old Adam in us can be um, the greatest champion of grace the world has ever known, as long as it's grace that approves and accepts of his sin. So sometimes, I, I hate to say it, but sometimes the, the people beating their chest, the the hardest and shouting the loudest that they're the most gospel-filled, gospel-centered people um, aren't, in fact. They've manipulated the gospel in such a way that it's allowing them to just do whatever they want to do, and the flesh has grabbed that banner and is running around saying, look at me, I mean, think of the pride and arrogance. Look at me, I'm so gospel-y. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, what does the real gospel look like? The real gospel is genuine, but it comes to those who are repentant and those who are in the midst of spiritual struggle and those who acknowledge their failures and acknowledge this isn't this isn't right this isn't how I want to be even with chronic sins habitual sins besetting sins as they used to be called that's not indicative of falling into mortal sin mortal sin is when you cease to realize it's that moral sin is the kind of deadening of the of the conscience is the overlap to where you just again you say 
I, I want approval, not it. So in our study of the book of Hebrews, which is uh, at the 11 o'clock class, we're going to touch on some of these things because he does as well. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, uh, yeah. It was just to dovetail I think, on what he was saying too. Carl Sagan in 1995 wrote that the deadening of our ability to understand truth when suddenly we are taking things like uh, non-science and elevating them um, and believing them and putting them forth shows how our society is struggling with just what you're talking about. What is truth? What isn't truth? What is right? What is, you know, where is the real rule, you mm -hmm. know? And we see it now just even this silly COVID thing and how it's so divisive and mm -hmm. people are so sure on both sides, you know, about what they believe in. And you realize it's almost pointless to try to talk because everybody's set their tents and their big stone walls up and have decided this is the way it is. So it, it leaves us without open-mindedness. Anyway, that just brought that to me. And I had just read that my cousin sent me the Carl Sagan quote and I just, I couldn't believe it. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, that was in 1995 that he wrote that. And he said, we're going to see this is where society really decays. And for him to have seen that, noticed it in 1995, and now I th reflect on where we are at 2022, it is that on steroids, it seems like. Very, wasn't, very yeah, wasn't there a recent uh, news article <laughs> of a science camp where male leaders identified as females and uh, stayed overnight with a bunch of young girls? I mean, this, this is unthinkable madness even just eight years ago. Exactly. And that's what brings me to the point that I really wanted to talk to, you know, just it was so fascinating what he was saying, too. Um, I had a client, and, and, I, and it was a perfect uh, example of, I wish I had had the paraclete language way back then when I had this client, but he was um, gay, and he never, ever expressed it, went to Bethel Bible College, mm -hmm. where apparently, I don't know if anybody's ever been there or not, they have a weekly session on homosexuality in their chapels and stuff and talk about it. Totally remained quiet, silent, never acted on it. He actually came to me for an eating disorder, and, and but always thinks that's the red herring. You know, it's these other, but he was deeply troubled in this statement. I might have written to you about this. I'm not sure. I wrote to somebody because I didn't know how to handle this. This was a theological. He sat there and he said, why would God put me on this earth to just play cat and mouse with me? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which meant that he totally got it. Mm -hmm. He was tortured. Mm -hmm. And so for me to come down with more brimstone and hellfire mm -hmm. at that moment would have been so inappropriate but yet right to excuse it too i i went what i finally did i don't even know how i came to this is i just went i'm sure there are other because what he was doing is he was ignoring one entire side of god's creation men mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. he had lots of friends that were women but no men he just which was maybe the proclivity he had to live with the rules he had to you know to be able to live within God's grace. It turns out he probably didn't, but mm -hmm. but the thing is, is um, um, my idea was well, then I'm sure there are men who think just like you and have friendships and things. You know that, that they have the same. You're not the only 
mm-hmm. guy out there. Think, you know, might be looking for a needle in a haystack. I don't know, but I, right. you know, you're you. It seemed like his inner heart was set up correct, but he was beginning to show the dulling, or he was looking mm-hmm. for a, another exit to his terrible, right, terrible predicament that he felt himself in. Yeah, people will seek out authorities in order to gain gain permission so that they're conscious, you know, whether that authority is a doctor or the law or a pastor, if one happens to be Christian or a counselor, they'll seek out authorities to justify. I mean, a couple of comments there. Um, it is it is statistically the case that generally speaking, this can just help in a general way. It's not always true, but it's true um, a vast majority of the time, according to the statistics we have. That what occurs um, as a as a child is growing up, let's take in this case a male, um, he has a very poor relationship with his father. He has an absent father um, or an abusive father. And he instantly associates with mom. And mom is where I'm safe. Mom is what I'm like. Mom is who I am. I'm mom's kind of person. When puberty happens and the, and the, you know, the, the, um, the hormones hit, then you have that reverse of now I'm attracted to the opposite of what I am. Well, if you have imprinted I am mom, um, you suddenly att- find yourself experiencing male attraction because the opposite. And this is a very, very common theme in what happens. And very frequently, you can just ask people, and if they'll be open about their childhood, you see these dynamics. So that can be a helpful thing to keep in mind just in making people aware of, of what some of the causation of all of this is. Now, um, another thing that we can give people as Christians uh, is we can give them... Uh, a sense of order, clarity, and sanity. And I think one of the ways we can do this is by starting to tighten up our language and and see the ways in which language itself is being abused um, of its essence, a theological issue, when language is being abused. How is language being abused? Well, in something so simple as identifying yourself as homosexual or heterosexual. Where, biblically speaking, does God say that he has created heterosexuals and created homosexuals? Nowhere. Already we've got a categorical error occurring in our thinking, and that foundational error is going to translate to all other kinds of errors. What does God create? Male and female. He creates female for the male and male for the female. Okay. He creates one for one. Anywhere where we see a derivation of this, we can point to that and say, it's a, that's the norm. Here's a derivation from that norm. So in the case of, of uh, a male, you would say, you're not a homosexual. You're a man, and you're experiencing same-sex attraction. And that's, a, and that's a disordered sexual attraction. It's not something God has created you with. It's something that came about as a result of the fall. Well, but it's in my my genetics. I've felt it since I was conceived. Okay, fine. I don't mind conceding that ground because there's nothing contrary. What if you find that found the alcoholic gene, or the shopping aholic gene, or the eating too much gene, or the you know whatever the case may be? What if you find the the same sex attraction gene? Who cares? It's a fallen creation. We simply acknowledge that our biology is every bit as fallen as our minds, our souls, so um, no, there's no need to have some great big fight there. 
what we can simply just reassert is you're a man and God has given woman to you. Uh, but now your, your same-sex attraction that you're experiencing is a disordered attraction. And, and in some ways, too, it's, it's not this special class of sin either. Because amongst males who lust for uh, those who are not their wives, there's a disordered sexual attraction. You're not attracted to the same sex, you're attracted to the opposite sex too much. You're not satisfied by the one woman that God has prepared for you and, and given to you. Um, so that's a disordered sexual attraction. But again, we can talk about this. And then, and then what freedom there is, what dignity there is in saying, I am a male created in God's image and I experience same-sex attraction. God have mercy on me. It's disordered and I know it's disordered. I'm going to do my best not to act upon it. I'm going to repent. But if I die with this same attraction, the same disordered sexual attraction, can I be forgiven? Well, every bit as much as the man who dies with the same sex, I mean, with the sexual disordering of desiring more females than his wife. Of course. The whole point of repentance is that we acknowledge who, who we are, who God would have us to be, that we're not these things, and we make a confession. Because we've allowed this language to slip into ontology, I am a homosexual, I am a heterosexual, we've allowed it to undermine the whole frame that God actually gives to us in his word. So hopefully that makes sense. This is one of the things that Christianity, I don't think anytime soon, this will be embraced, but if the Lord chooses not to return on a long enough time frame, this will be, these will be the seeds of the re-Christianization of, of America and the West is Christianity will be standing here saying, how'd all that go for you? You've got you've got male counsel, adult counselors sleeping with little infants. You've got rampant wickedness that I thought we were all opposed to at one point in time, and now you've all blessed it. I mean, it's hate speech apparently to speak. How how'd all that go for you? All right, would you like to return to sanity? Because that's what Christianity has for you. It has a frame of understanding the world that is going to be better than all other frames, and you're going to have sanity and right ordering and and right thoughts, and then better lives um, as a result. So anyway, um, I digress. But this is, this is why it's so important for us to hold these things, learn these things, because these, this is what we have to offer um, a culture. It's a little bit more sophisticated than just running out there and saying, Jesus died for you. Did you just convert? It didn't work? Oh, Lord have mercy. Um, it's a little more complicated than that. We need to go out and address people where they're at in their needs and call them to repentance in ways that make sense to them. And then, of course, what do I do about my sins? Oh, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, maybe that can be that. I'm sorry for the lengthy answer there. I um, was watching the news the other day, and there, they were interviewing a young woman who um, was very blatant about what her sin was. She uh, said she'd been arrested 44 times for stealing. And he said, well, what do you do? What is your job? She says, that's what I do. Mm -hmm. I bounce, I think it's called. Mm -hmm. And he said, what do you mean that's what you do? She said, every single day. Mm -hmm. He said, where do you go? She goes, only the best stores. Yeah. And he said, what are you wearing? Which I thought was hilarious. And she says, oh, today I'm wearing, uh, 
I don't know, it was Neiman Marcus. Oh, okay. And it was hilarious. It was hilarious in a way, but then I looked at her eyes and they were dead. Yeah. And here's my question. Is your conscience also informed by who nurtures you, your parents, your, mm-hmm. you know, did somebody in her infancy give her the, the right to do this or because she just honestly didn't see anything wrong with it. Right. Yeah, that is the job. One of the key jobs of parents is informing the conscience of your children. We do all this. We just haven't, we just haven't given much formal thought to it. We haven't really just said, Oh yeah, well, that's what I'm doing in disciplining them is I'm forming their con, you know, we've just conceived of it in other terms and that's all well and good. But that is precisely what we're doing. Now, what do parents run up against? Well, when you put your kids in uh, in public school and the public school's teaching them the exact opposite and doing so through massive peer pressure and secondary authorities, which are sometimes more powerful than the primary authority, because what kids are looking to do is saying, do other authorities line up with what the primary authority is telling me? If not, then the primary authority ceases to be believable. This, by the way, again, in a roundabout way, is why you need to be in church and have your kids in church. Because a pastor in that community serves as a secondary authority, reinforcing in the kids' minds, hey, when the, well, I'm testing what the primary authority has told me. Is this right or not? And when the pastor says, absolutely, and in fact, that, and even more so, and how blessed you are to have parents that have taught you that, um, it, it lines up those two dots and reinforces that in the child's mind. So it's absolutely what we're doing. And then as parents, too, communicating that forgiveness of sins. You know, I think... Sometimes um, we have to be careful with our with our punishment of children. Now there needs there's there's opportunity for restitution and for justice and for teaching that, but we want to be careful when we teach not to teach self justification, that the way you feel better and the way you get out of it is doing X, Y, and Z. Okay, the way you get out of it and feel better is because Christ died for your sins just as He died for mine and He died for the sins of the whole world, and because you are completely and totally forgiven. Now, how do we go about setting this right? How do we go about making good on this, right? That's, that's the directionality. And that's, that's equally important, lest we raise a, you know, a number of kids who think they've just got to, uh, fix it all internally themselves by their own actions. That takes us back to Wolfmuller's book and one of the great errors in how to deal with a bad conscience, the self-justification, um, the pride then that comes. Um, the opposite of that, of course, being, uh, despair and the self-atonement. Um, but you can see how close self-justification and self-atonement are to each other. They're just kind of a different psychological direction, a different spiritual direction in terms of how they feel. The self-justification is optimistic. The self-atonement is pessimistic. The self-atonement is kind of manifest in extreme forms with like the, when kids cut themselves and that kind of thing. That's like a really extreme cultural form of, uh, of self-atonement. I, I remember when I was a little kid, I, I, I was laughing about this the other day, when I was a little kid and I'd get a really bad conscience and I'd be grumpy and angry at the world and everything, I'd strip my whole bed of like all the pillows and all the sheets, I'd throw them all on the floor and I'd sleep on the on the bed by myself just feeling miserable, you know, like, yeah, like, uh, J- like Jonah under the broom tree. <laughs> but, you know, you analyze that and you go, that was weird, why did I do that? Self-atonement. That's what it was. You're trying to say, I'm not okay with the world. My conscience has been violated. I'm not okay with myself. I'm going to punish myself. I'm going to make atonement for this. Yeah. So this is written, this is written deeply in us. If you, uh, explore your own childhood, you probably find your own examples of self-atonement or self-justification. Oh. Yeah. Uh, did I see another? Please. Um, three things, uh, uh, what Alice brought up about 
parents and their children. And I had uh, talked to someone many years ago, and he had told me that stories are the vehicle to teach these things to children. And I, I realize this is how Christ has taught us, and the Bible itself is full of stories yeah. to inform us. And the, the vehicle for children is stories. Yeah, and, and that's such a great point because even if we in our adult lives realize that the, that they're not, that so many of the biblical stories and narratives aren't merely morality tales. And in fact, that isn't even primarily what they are. Even so, the fact that kids are taught those and grasp them on that level is well and good. And it's the foundation necessary for you to realize later on that there's much more to the story. That even though Abraham was a champion of the faith, look at what else he was. <laughs> even though David was the giant slayer, look what else he was, right? But there's room for that. more. I, I don't know, there was this big push in the Lutheran church a while back, you know, stop moralizing our children in Sunday school. <laughs> Why would you want to do that? Why would you ever want to do that? Um, of course, you, insofar as you can teach kiddos the deeper meaning of the story and the deeper meaning of God's grace, great. But yeah, instructional all the way up, the scriptures are designed in this way so that there's not only repentance and forgiveness of sins, but there's also just a, a sense of informing the conscience. These are, these are what heroes look like. These are what heroes do. These are the virtues that we all aspire toward and that we all lift up as a community, as a church and people of God. We all lift these virtues up and say, these, this is what, this is the ideal. Do we all fall short of this glory? All the time. But this is what we're aspiring toward and building each other up toward. Oh, the, the second thing I just wanted to add to the, the comment you made about the homosexual and heterosexual categories. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting, this case in Finland, the attorney general or whoever he is, is attacking the very words male and female. That's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. Of course that's the attack. That, and that's where we need to just cling to the ontology that God gives us. He doesn't make humanity. He makes male and female into his image. Uh, and that's very important because if you go beyond that, then then male and female become categories that are maybe maybe we can choose that. Maybe that can be assigned at birth, which is where we're at right now. Right? Um, you're just born a human, and then whether you're male or female is assigned at birth. I mean, next up is like the as the parents are deciding this is like okay, well, are you going to chemically castrate this person or you know change them through surgery so that they fit the assigned? Gen I mean, this is all the madness to where it's going, but. Yeah, getting to this biblical ontology of the utmost importance and returning to that. Mm -hmm. And then just not being ashamed. I mean, having a, ironically, here's the three-dimensional nature of it, but ironically having a good conscience ourselves so that when we stand up against the lies of the world and the lies of culture, we don't have to do so angrily. We don't have to do so with a bad conscience. You don't have to be frustrated about it necessarily. We can simply state this as like, the sky is blue. This is how it is. You're going to kill me because I said the sky's blue? It is. You're going to imprison me because I said the king has no clothes? Look! He's naked. You know? And when we, when our consciences are that well informed, then we won't fear and we won't be driven to and fro and um, tossed and 
Yeah, so a question on the ontology, just a little deeper. I'm not, you know, somebody refers to themselves as a homosexual or someone else as a homosexual or refers to themselves as a heterosexual. We don't need to jump all over their case. Why? Because our language in, is imprecise on these points in English. Um, you can say, like, like bringing up the example, like the, the girl who steals all the time, she could say, well, I am a thief. And, okay, you know, or if you kill somebody, you know, in, intentionally, you say, I am a murderer. Or, or what's the AA? I am an alcoholic. Okay? There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that per se. But if we do a little deeper analysis, we're not actually saying that that's your ontology. I wasn't born as such. I wasn't created in the mind of God to be as such. I did these things and therefore I am. But that's a different question than ontology. So we don't want to get up and caught up in a kind of logomachy or, or war of words here. We just want to realize that when somebody says, I am this thing that's sinful, we need to be able to say, well, I understand what you're saying. You are, you're saying because I experienced same-sex attraction or because I've robbed every Fendi in Southern California or whatever, you know, I am a thief or I am a homosexual. But then this is part of the setting free of that is you can be like, yeah, but your actual identity is deeper than the sins you've committed. When those sins are wiped away, you cease to be a homosexual. You cease to be a thief. You cease to be an alcoholic. You are a man or a woman created in God's image, cleansed by the blood of Christ, who are present tense being restored into his image for eternal and everlasting glory. That's who you are. So this beautiful gospel theme we can do too. Well, like, acknowledge what you think you are. That can be your confession. But the gospel can actually be taking you back to the ontology, who God actually created you to be, and that forgiveness that washes all your sins and sinful identity away. Oh. So a beautiful way of doing biblical identity politics. Your identity is in Christ. No longer should you even, you know, we can, we can confess this way too, like I, a poor, miserable sinner, on the one hand. But on the other hand, we can say, in Christ, I am perfectly sinless and there's no condemnation. Which is the deeper identity? I, a poor, miserable sinner, or I, a redeemed, forgiven child of God? Which is the deeper I? I, a forgiven sinner, a redeemed child of God. That's the deeper I. In fact, the irony of that is when, when you say, I, a poor, miserable sinner, Okay, who's actually doing the good work of confessing and crucifying the sinful flesh? The new man. So the new man's saying, like, via St. Paul in Romans 7, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So there's this really fascinating, profound moment when confessing one's sins that you realize this separation of eyes. You know, the, the new man is confessing on behalf of the old man. This is who I am and what I've done literally, to hell with you, I'm on the side of Christ. Christ cleansed me as a whole person, and that absolution hits as a whole person. And then you you are... This is why Luther was so intent on it being a return to baptism, because you're returning to your deeper identity, your deepest possible identity. I am not a sinner. I am a forgiven child of God. That's the deepest identity. So after you've confessed your sin, you've returned to that deepest ontology. Hopefully that makes sense. Probably making something that's simple and obvious to you more complex than it needs to be. I just had a simple question. I think about the Catholics and why they differentiate between moral sin and venial sin. I mean, sin is sin. One maybe they think affects the conscience and themselves more than the other. That's a really hard question to answer in a short way. Yeah. I think, I think that that's something that can be 
I want to be careful here. Just the idea that different sins affect us differently is a part of that theology, and I think is a kind of pearl we can pull out from the straw there, um, and we can grasp hold of that little grain of truths. And that's something that's kind of been lost in Protestantism, where um, you know we have these kinds of slogans. They're completely wrong and inaccurate. Uh, we're all equally sinful. No, we're all equally condemned because one sin brings down the whole law upon you. One sin brings down death. One sin brings down damnation. But that has nothing to say about degrees of evil, degrees of sinfulness, etc. Um, and one of the other implications we've got, and this is just dead wrong, all sins are equal. It's not true. All sins are equally damning because one violation of the law, it's a zero-sum game, it's an absolutist state. Um, all sins are equally damning, that's true, but not all sins are equal. Jesus himself even says to Pilate, who has the greater sin is he who handed me over to you. So if you needed a proof text, there you go. But you don't need a proof text, because you don't treat your kids when one of them, you know, accidentally spills a, through negligence, spills a jar of rice on the ground. You don't treat them the same way as if they knowingly, willfully, intentionally, and after many warnings, walked up to their brother and ripped his hair out another time. Um, those are two different offenses, aren't they? They're worthy of two different treatments. Our entire legal system is built this way. You don't get locked up forever for violating the speed limit, um, but you might for murdering someone. You see, we already know this. This is a kind of spiritual theological insanity we've been duped into. Um, so one of the things that, that that particular view of kind of a gradation of sin can help us see more accurately is there's in fact an objective truth to that that we need to acknowledge. And then we should, we should be concerned with that in terms of uh, um, how that affects us and how we offer uh, pastoral care to different people with different sins. Right. I mean, Paul even talks about a different class of sin, the sexual sins being the only class of sin that is against one's own body. Remember that? We don't have time to go into that thoroughly, but even there you see a gradation or a differentiation out between the different kinds of sins and how they affect us. That's about it. Um, yeah, the, the straight-up the straight up difference between mortal and venial as conceived by um, Roman Catholic theology is not other than that very helpful at all. Um, and it's entirely different than how Lutherans have conceived it. We've conceived mortal and venial in a couple of different ways. But generally speaking, in Lutheranism, and I think this rings true to the Bible, and, and specifically the biblical references, like a sin leading unto death at the end of 1 John, that's what's in view. That would be a mortal sin, biblically speaking. What is that? That's an impenitent sin. It's a sin you knowingly, willfully and do, even though you... And there's no... There's no sense of remorse. There's no sense of this is evil. There's no sense of if I could push a button and be rid of this, I would. There's no sense of God save me. It's just, hey, this is great. Fine. Um, yeah, that's mortal sin. Who would say otherwise? right? Uh, and then venial sins are those sins you know and feel and repent. So I think this is where Luther is pretty brilliant because he's like, you know, murder could be a venial sin if you are immediately repentant of it. Like, truly repentant. God's not mocked. We're not playing games here, right? I mean, if you're repentant of it, um, while as something so small as, you know, stealing a gumball from somebody could be um, mortal if you're completely impenitent about it. Because, again, what's at issue here between mortal and venial is one's penitence. That's why Jesus stresses, and all the scriptures stress, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. That's why we plead guilty before God of all sins. I acknowledge it all. There's no, there's no worthiness in me as such. Um, no worthiness by which I'm going to stand before your judgment seat and beat my chest and say, well, I got that. No, I'm going to plead guilty of all sins and entrust myself entirely to your grace and mercy. 
even still while I'm doing that, I'm not going to deny the works of renewal that the Holy Spirit has wrought within me and that he has given me a new heart with new desires. I'm just not going to make that the basis of my justification. I'm not going to stand before God and say, see, I've got a new heart and I've got these new desires. Does that make up for anything? <laughs> I mean, that's dumb. Don't do that. But, uh, but don't deny that that's a reality either, right? That the Holy Spirit is renewing us and changing us. That's just a fact, biblically speaking. Okay, sorry again for the long-winded answer. I guess that's all pastors can give, or me in particular. Please. I was hope. I'm sorry for the request for review, but no possibly using Alice's unrepentant thief as the example, you earlier succinctly described the thought process that leads from knowing it's wrong to getting permission. Could you go in the other direction where this thief would become, again, aware of the sin, the repetitive nature of the sin. You repent, you ask for forgiveness, you know it's wrong, you try to keep yourself from doing it. Mm -hmm. I mean, what's the right Yeah, the way back is usually a landslide kind of thing, at least in terms of one's mind. Um, In the Greek word metanoia is really at the heart of it is a change of mind, and that's the first part of repentance. It's what I look for as a pastor. I don't look for like, okay, if it's some egregious, like, sin that requires a lot of forethought, you know, like, okay, you need to stop putting on the black mask, getting your buddies together in a getaway car, driving to the bank with your Uzis, right? Okay, um, so no, there, there are, there are certain kinds and classes of sins that we can expect people to stop right away. Okay, but, um, and, and that's what I mean is it's kind of like a landslide. And even with kind of habitual or besetting sins, like let's say um, pornography, uh, eating addiction, shopping addiction, um, gambling addiction, these, these kinds of um, habitual or besetting sins, okay, there's a landslide that usually happens in the person's mind where, they, where the self-justifications fall away and they're just kind of reduced to shame and humiliation and just a sense of like, I regret it all. Now, that doesn't mean, though, that the fight's over. That doesn't mean that those sins are magically going to disappear. And so, pastorally, what I'm looking for, let's say that this this woman is a kleptomaniac. She's got some compulsive desire to do this. It's the thrill. It's really the addiction of trying not to get caught. And it's the endorphins that release. And, and that's her manifestation of it. She, so she becomes, in her brain, chemically addicted to that. In the same way we all become chemically addicted to other things, according to our brain biology. Okay, so what I'm looking for as a pastor is that landslide of, it's wrong. And then if she comes to me and says, I can't believe it. I confessed and I repented and I was forgiven on Sunday and here it is Tuesday and I've already, I'm already back at Neiman Marcus, you know. Stuffing the scarf into my purse. Um, Lord have mercy. Uh, there's going to be forgiveness. And then there's going to be, let's work towards restitution. And let's set in plan, let's set in place plans and, and kinds of things of like, how can this not happen? And what, and let's get into the psychology and the counseling and like, what, what, the, why are you seeking this? What, what is the thrill you need? Can we get that thrill in and You know, so, okay, so there's this whole therapeutic thing that happens. Um, but what I'm looking for is not somebody to immediately stop all sins. Okay, I'm looking for um, those particular sins. What did Jesus say to the woman who was caught in adultery? Go and sin no more. Why? That's a different class. 
That's an entirely different class of sin. Adultery is one of those where, like, okay, you have to make about 15 different choices. You don't just slip and fall and poof, you're in, you know, somebody else's bed. Okay, go and sin no more. So there are, there are classes of sins and kinds of sins that we have every right to, to just say to each other, stop that. Okay, but there are other kinds of sins that are besetting or habitual by nature and often they're secretive. That's how, why you can continue to get away with it. Okay, that, those are sins that, again, we want to address via confession, absolution, and kind of programmatic um, attempts to heal through that sin. But we can't mistake that for mortal sin. We can't mistake, if, if it was mistaken for mortal sin, then it gets like, okay, well, truly, who then can be saved? <laughs> who then is, who then is repentant? Who then is without some Addictive, repetitive, habitual, um, sin, sometimes they even say sin of my nature, so like short temper, um, risk taking, uh, those are ones that, you know, commonly manifest. Lying, those are ones that commonly manifest. Um, you can't just change that overnight. You can't just get rid of that all overnight. You should, you need to wage lifelong war against those sins. Re- and everybody needs to realize that there's going to be ground gained and ground lost and so on and so forth. That's the, the nature of that trial. We all are. I'm only, I'm only speaking hypothetically. Yeah. <laughs> Can we, w- one second. Oh. <laughs> Okay, never mind on the microphone. This was a reference to Nehemiah and his his hair pulling episode. Yeah, um, he was plucking the beards off of impenitent people. Yeah, well, Jesus hasn't given us to do that, so I suppose we'll uh, we'll hold off on that. Plus, what goes around comes around, and I don't know. I cringe thinking of that. A couple more comments on conscience, and let's be done um, with conscience and. Um, We'll go on to chapter 6, which kind of introduces the sacraments, the external nature of the sacraments, and then we'll go headlong into baptism. And I, I don't intend to spend too long, just because that's a foundation that's already been laid in so many places, but we will um, we'll touch on anything pertinent or interesting to you. So page 116, um, here Wolf Mueller says, this is about halfway down the page, real short paragraph, one-liner. We cannot achieve a good conscience. A good and clean conscience is the gift of God in Christ, in his death, his blood, his mercy. Paul writes to Timothy, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Okay, So those three things go together. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And, you know, I think, too, like, we as Lutherans need to spend some real time just kind of marinating in this. It's not wrong to think of yourself as having a pure heart. It's not wrong to think of yourself as having a good conscience. It's not wrong to think of yourself as having a sincere faith. There's nothing hypocritical or proud about that. Um, this is what Paul says the goal for pastors is to do, is to create this in people by preaching law and gospel, by instructing and informing the conscience. So if this is happening within us, we should just say, thanks and praise be to God. And we can see that a pure heart doesn't mean a sinless heart. A good conscience doesn't mean a, a person without sin, nor does a sincere faith mean an absence of sin. But it means that it's all being handled appropriately, biblically. There's repentance. There's warfare. There's a receipt of God's forgiveness, right? That's spiritual health, this side of heaven. 
All right, and Wolfmuller is going to quote from Hebrews. Hebrews says, And since we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Now that sprinkling clean is done by the blood. This is Old Testament language. Um, but this particularly the Old Covenant that was ratified when the people were sprinkled by Moses with the blood of bulls, if you remember this. Um, what is Jesus? How does Jesus with the new covenant sprinkle us clean? With whose blood? His blood. And how so? Not by sprinkling us literally, but by the Lord's Supper, by his chalice, his blood coming into our lips and into our bodies. So this isn't meant to be taken in the abstract. By receiving the Lord's blood in the New Testament, in his blood, in the sacrament of the altar, we have our evil consciences sprinkled and cleansed, and thus our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Okay, so this is like, you know, reason number 101 why to go to church. Um, But actually, this is kind of central, uh, because... Throughout the week, God doesn't change, but we change. And one of the chief ways that we change is in our conscience. Our conscience becoming disinformed by all the lies of media and the social pressures of the people around us. But then also our conscience is becoming evil and defiled because of sins we've done, because of sins that other people have done against us, because of sinful things we've seen in the media and news. Our hearts become defiled. And if we're not aware that that's even happening, we can just be like, well, I'm in a bad mood. Well, I'm depressed. Well, I just kind of hate life. Um, deeper analysis is, no, you got a bad conscience. And and that happens to us all the time. I mean, no sooner than you walk out of divine service and somebody looks at you the wrong way or you get into the minivan and the kids shake their fries everywhere, um, that bad conscience has already started again. And we wage war against that bad conscience throughout the week, but the divine service is there for us as that stalwart foundation and gift of God that whereby our consciences are cleansed regularly, once a week, um, in this in this profound way by sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus. All right, so bottom of 116 in the brackets, and I this is kind of Wolfmuller, um, you know, and I repeating each other, but here, a good conscience is not a conscience without sin. A good conscience is a forgiven conscience. And top of 117, the devil tries to fill our conscience with a false verdict, misusing the law. He declares us not good enough. Or, excuse me, he declares us good enough. I guess this is the proud, prideful take. I'm a good person, so I will, I surely will go to heaven. Wrong. There is no good conscience without Jesus. Well said. And so there's the pride and the danger. Um, and then look at the next line. Here's the despairing. Or the devil, again misusing the law, says, you'll never be saved. You've sinned too much. You are too wicked. Wrong. It is God who judges, and he gave your death sentence to his son so that you would have life. Okay, so the devil's right when he calls us sinners. He's wrong when he condemns us to hell. Jesus has suffered. Jesus has died, risen again, and ascended to God's right hand. Jesus brings before the Father the evidence of his blood, his cross. The testimony of our sin is struck from the record. We are absolved, declared righteous and holy by the heavenly court. If the blood of Jesus stands in this courtroom, then it stands in our consciences as well.
And that's a fine way to end our meditation on conscience. All right, next week, as I mentioned, we'll be talking about external things and American Christianity's problem with external things. In American Christianity, all the all the important things are inside of you, in your heart, right? In your spirit. We're going to see how that's non-biblical. And we're going to have a nice introduce, introduction to the sacraments and the ways in which God cleanses our conscience. The Lord be with you. And also-